0: We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly 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 to... don't. Come on. Into Messi. Messi. It's a sharing And Coach Aaron I will love it
1: if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney.
0: Aguero. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. Joining us today is Jack Ross, Pro licensed Coach, managed Dundee, United, Hib, Samirin, and, and of course, Sunderland, as I'm sure many of you are familiar through the Netflix series. We'll talk about his experiences going in, coaching at the highest level, and then also his current course in sport directorship and where the game is going with that. You're going to love this. Some brilliant stuff from Jack. Really excited to have him on and some excellent insight. Today's podcast is sponsored by Football Careers, the global football recruitment company that specializes in recruiting for clubs, colleges, universities, and private soccer academies around the world. We're very excited to team up with them and we will hear from them at the halfway point with a special offer if you want some help with your coaching resume. All right, here is Jack. Enjoy. Jack, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really, really excited to have you on.
1: How oh, are you, Gary? Delighted to be asked on, and um, yeah, very much looking forward to it.
0: I'm, I'm going to base a lot of this off your presentation on the coach's voice, and I'm going to urge coaches to go and, and take a look at it. Obviously, the coach's voice has some great stuff. The first question that I wanted to, to ask you was, something you regarded the behavioural side of, of management. Create the ambition, share the ambition, achieve the ambition. And we talked before recording about kind of coaches get swept up in, in, in a certain direction of moving in the game. But I, I feel and I say it with coaches getting swept up. in. I don't know whether it's the Mourinho effect, of, but it's people wanting to go in and become super ambitious and tell everyone that they can change the environment and win games and do all that. How do you go in as a manager, but set realistic expectations, but be ambitious at the same time?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, you know, if, if this is a standard of your question Gary, then it's going to be good. It's, um, you know, because it's an interesting question and it's something that, you know, I've probably had to um, consider and adjust over my time in management as well. And to give context to that, I, um, I took my first two management jobs when the teams or the respective teams were bottom of the league. So, Alowa and St Martin. And in that situation, you have the clear ambition is to survive and avoid relegation. So, I walked into a scenario whereby it was quite straightforward for me to articulate that ambition both internally and externally. In the first instance, we actually got relegated at Alowa. But then, it was to be expected to the degree the league we were competing in. In the following season, it became about winning that league because that was realistic. Then fast forward to St Martin. we stayed up, we avoided relegation and then we set that lofty ambition again of winning the league. And because most of it happened, I thought, well, this is okay, this is easy. You know, you 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 share the ambition or you ask the players the ambition, you, you, you know, that you spoke about, you know, you create it, you share it and then you achieve it. So I then thought, well, this is management, we'll do this, it's a blueprint, if you like. Um, and then Sunderland was again was a clear was a clear goal because it Copper suffered two consecutive relegations, so achieving promotion back to the Championship was a clear and obvious aim. Again, I think the learning experience for me was that to begin with in the early part of management, it was like yeah you, it works, this is a way to do it. But the pitfalls potentially, as you mentioned, are you become become victim of your own um, transparent ambition because that can come back to haunt you, because people use it with a stick to beat you, rightly or wrongly. So I think I would I would then, if I was to look back now, I think definitely internally always use that mantra. I think you have to have something to strive towards. I'll come back to that in a second. Externally, I think you have to be considered. I think you have to pick um, the moment. I think you have to gauge the environment, the circumstance you're working in, and when you want to, to articulate that publicly. However, you have to be mindful of the stakeholders, particularly supporters, and what they want to hear from you. Um, and then, just to finish, going back to the point about um, creating something internally, one of the biggest challenges I had with that was when I took the Hibs job. And it was because, in Scotland, um, it's very, very, very difficult in the current climate to win the Championship or the Premier League. Um, and There are people who comment on that as being unambitious but the resources available to, to Rangers and Celtic are so big in comparison to the other clubs. So, I struggled with this because every club I'd been at was avoiding relegation or trying to win promotion and win a league. And at Hibs, finishing third, if you like, was, was well, that was the ambition, that was the aim. But it doesn't sound great. You know, if at the start of the season you say to the players and staff, you know, we want to finish third. Even though we know that's success. Um so I wrestled with that for a while and actually it, it came to me that we had a team meeting and um pre season and I asked the players what's you know we said let's create the ambition and share it. So what do we want to do? Players being players not a lot comes back to begin with. So I had an opening slide that said win the league. And I left it there and you know Luke cage in the room and it should look be honest, who thinks that's unrealistic or difficult, very, very difficult, almost impossible. A little bit of silence then, one hand goes up. And again, footballers me, footballers, they follow and others join in. And I was quite happy. He said, well, good, because I probably agree. But if I was to ask you a different question, what does a team that wins, wins the league look like? You know, what do they have to be? What do they have to be every day when they walk in the training ground? What do they have to be every match day? And then we created a discussion about all these different attributes and qualities that you need to have. So they all came back to me with them. So we wrote them all down as they came and then, then we turned it and said, Well can we be that every day? That's our season's ambition. Can we be all these things every single day? And we had them put on the, the, the corridor outside the first team dressing room in the training ground. And it was just a different way of of the same just packaging the same ambition if you like, but in a different way that didn't look as if we were being defeated at the start. Um, so yeah, I think I think you have to internally absolutely create an ambition and share it externally. Uh, and be conscious of some of the challenges you might cause yourself by vocalising it too too quickly or, or too loudly.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating that that piece on external and internal. Like I'm 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 thinking about an owner now who you know there's a great Ferguson quote about picking the chairman to manage for, and obviously I think when he's saying that he meant that the chairman that's going to give you a uh, patient, be patient with you and persevere and commit to your vision and all those great things. But we, are we now in a world or we we are in a world where, where culture is now society is, is looking for things a lot quicker and investment in football is people are wanting return on that investment in, in a lot of countries and opportunities are sparse to work in professional football. And when you go to that interview to manage a team, Can you be selective on the chair type of chairman and can you change the mindset of the chairman or how does that process work?
1: Yeah, again, I think it's very idealistic to say that you will will have the opportunity to pick and choose the environment you go into. Some people will be in a fortunate enough position that they have lots of time at their disposal and they can wait for the right opportunity. some will be sheer sing- that single-mindedness enough to believe that that opportunity and right environment will come around, but most, I would say the majority, because as you mentioned, uh, supply and demand, there's, a, there's a, um, limited supply management opportunities and a huge, huge demand for people to want to do it. So I think that you do your due diligence. Do you always pay attention to it? Sometimes I think you'll ignore it depending on your circumstances, again, depending on how keen you are to step into management, how keen you are to return to management. Um, and because you, to be a manager, I think you have to back yourself. And because of that, you will always believe that you can turn a situation. But having having a clear mid to long term vision that you are a part of is an absolute, it would be a huge benefit to any manager. and But it doesn't happen very often. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, the, the societal aspect to, the want for change has obviously filtered through into sport, and particularly football. And at the moment, it's a, it's a, it's part of the challenge of being a head coach or a manager. But it's not going to go away quickly. And ultimately, you probably just have to win to survive, to give yourself a chance of succeeding. Um, and then perhaps you you can create a longer term plan from there. Um, but I would suggest that the the real clear, consistent strategic plans are uh, the exception rather than the rule, I think.
0: There's a red and white shirt behind you, and I'm assuming at Sunderland. <laughs> and we're talking expectations and obviously uh, I'm sure a lot of people have listened and w- or watched the, the Netflix show. And I've been to Sunderland a few times and when I was younger, growing up, I even got blown away by, this, by, the, by the expectations of people in that area. Such a small city, but such big expectations to compete at such a high level. Um, when you go into a role like that, and you mentioned there about consecutive relegations, when you try to get buy-in from players, is this a process that you mentioned there about the physical environment, about pictures and stuff like that? Is Does that take uh, precedence, or do you have an initial meeting that you're looking at almost shocking them, or how deliberate are you before going into an environment about that messaging?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you mentioned Sunderland, I an mean, incredible football club to have the privilege of managing. Um, you know, that understanding of how big it is is difficult to, to articulate to people unless they've experienced it first or visited the club. Um, and I suppose in, in terms of your question, it's a good example to use of my time there because, um, again, it, it probably reflects upon the need to adapt, I think, and change your approach. So that impact you make initially, or the impact you can make gradually through the aesthetics of the training ground. So the training ground, part of it, uh, in my previous jobs, I was able to improve the the look of the training ground, whether it be through messages, whether it be through visuals. But then I inherited either job, or, I took on a job, sorry, at Sunderland, and walked in a training ground that was that was incredible. There wasn't really much aesthetically I could do to that place to have a significant impact. So that was there. So, okay, the environment's very, very good, but what happens within the environment? The club's had two consecutive relegations, so it's not in a brilliant place. Not just players, but people all around the club. And then, you know, how do you do that? So, again, a lot of courses, you'll get asked, you know, what would you do in your first meeting with the players? Well, I had a situation at Sunderland where I had 13 players walk back in for the first day pre-season for a variety of reasons. You know, a number of players didn't want to be at the club, had huge contracts. There was all sorts going on. So it kind of um, meant any any first day meeting I would have would lose, it wouldn't have that much impact because the squad at the start of the season was going to look significantly different. It had to. So that was, a, that was um, a wrestle for me because it was a new experience because how did I try and get a buy-in quickly? And I actually took a call and before, I was down in the training ground long before the players came back into a call from David Weir, who's now technical director at Brighton. And it was just, just purely to wish me good luck. But through the course of the conversation, he asked how I was feeling. And I said, well, naturally, you have a bit of apprehension. And I mentioned some of these challenges. And he said, you know, his experience been played at Everton, played at Rangers, played the national team. You know, top players, if you're organised and you communicate, they're two very, very easy wins. But it's really important. And I believe that was a strength irrespective of the size of the club I'd managed previously. So I went with that. So it meant that how I worked, how I structured training, how I informed players of what we were doing and what we delivered on the training pitch, I decided I would get the buy-in from that. And I think we did. You know, I think I had a group that, that you know, including players, Lee like had Aid McGeady, George Honeymans, you know, players who would go on and have good players we had already had top careers at that point, Brian Oviedo, and I, it was a it was a really interesting learning experience for me to to understand that there is no one size fits all approach. I mean, you've got to gauge and feel the situation um, and understand what was best at that time. And, and by relying on what we delivered and how we did things and how we behaved, how we conducted ourselves, I believe got us the buy. And I think that was more much more impactful at that moment than having some state of the nation address, which I think people wrongly believe is always the way to do it.
0: Yeah, it brings us along nicely about this. Again, the 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 big message I got in your presentation was the flexibility piece. Is a football philosophy set or can it be flexible? And and you not to ruin it for people who haven't watched it, but again, at the end, you need a bit of both. And you give great insight into different experiences and how that's brought you to that point. And I, I guess, again, before we kind of move from that initial period, when you're looking at at developing your philosophy and even we're coming off a of World Cup now where some of the teams are are so flexible tactically that we're successful. How do you think or what advice would you have for people to articulate flexibility in their approach who maybe haven't had these bank of experiences that you had?
1: Well I think I think clarity is always vital. I think clarity and just communication is obvious, but I think clarity in what you're trying to deliver from a tactical perspective, I think, bear in mind a lot of time, you know, you'll speak to people who, not all the time I think with the emergence of the sporting director role which we might touch on later, I think is changing the dynamics of um, the understanding of people at senior management level of of football However, there are a number of occasions whereby you will present tactical information to people that generally won't be that knowledgeable about it Um, so, I mean, there's two aspects of that. One, not tying yourself in knots, but two, also delivering something that's authentic. I think that's a problem now because you know there's so much information available now. There's so many software packages available. We can all make something look really nice from an aesthetic point of view. Throw in loads of jargon because that's omnipresent now as well. But if there's no, if it's not authentic, if there's no substance behind it, then it'll quickly fall down. So if you have a really, really prescribed style of play, communicate that, because it will be believed. If you have a really structured and strong belief in playing a high press or or playing whatever it is, then deliver it. If if you're flexible in your approach and you believe in that, deliver it. That's the, the, the biggest thing I would say. I think the authenticity side of it is, is absolutely vital because if you if you pretend you're something else, going in to try and get the job, it'll unravel quickly, um, one way or another. Eventually, you know, even if it starts off okay, I think it'll all unravel. So, because ultimately, as well, if you if you're describing your approach, and that's you know that's not what the club wants to hear, then it's not the right fit. Um, and again, it goes back to, to that point about so many people desperate to be involved in the game and get these jobs. Um, but to give your best, yourself, sorry, the best possible chance of success, I think um, being genuine in what you are articulating and ensuring you absolutely believe in it is important.
0: Another thing you mentioned in the in the presentation was how coaches can lose their way in management. Um, something that Anjit Celtic has talked about. About uh, this was something that I posted a while back. A quote that he's like, "I say this to every manager from the start: of the job tries to pull you away." From everything you believe in and I'm fascinated by that that insight because as a young coach and coach education a lot of messaging today is around being flexible but being open-minded but then at the, at the cutting edge at the top level sometimes that can be a disadvantage if you're chopping and changing your mind every week you mentioned there about authenticity but then credibility if you lose that changing room with that, that can be very, very difficult to get back. So what, wondering then your thoughts on that there, how how a manager, when they're going through a rough sticky patch or even if they get a bad result, how do they double down on what they believe or how do they balance being open-minded but being strong with their convictions?
1: I think there has to be a filtering process. You know, I think that's what you have to try and put in place as an individual. And the reason you have to do that is because if you look at where the information comes from that that is giving you, the, I suppose, the evidence to, to judge whether you're doing a good or a bad job. So it's going to come from your gut and instinct and your knowledge and experience. So all these things rolled into one will give you an opinion or give you evidence. Now you've got data, which is huge. So does the data contradict what you, you see or what you feel? Does it support it? Is it somewhere in the middle? And then there's the noise, which is which varies depending on the, the circumstance and the club you're working at. Um, but that noise comes from fans, obviously, yeah. social media platforms, media, pundits, presenters, all sorts of experts and so-called experts within it. So um, that's a lot, a lot of information out there. And, and, and also you're having to filter that in a very quick period of time because really it's for your next day's training or your plan for the next game and that can come around in two days' time, three days' time. So the filtering process and and that, the quicker you can develop that or understand that and then the, the quicker the filtering process is, then I think that's the best way to work. And how you do that experience, again, will always help. But I think mentoring is important. I think, I think coaching, management, mentoring is something that I think we'll see more of. In my opinion, this is a purely personal opinion, I think that um, coaches and managers will benefit from it. You know, whether that's somebody somebody already within a club or whether that's externally. I know a lot of it is done um, unofficially, if you like. People will have other managers or coaches they will go to for advice. But I do think that if we mentioned earlier about the demands on a coach, head coach, and how hard that is. So if clubs recognise that that this is tough, this is a tough job, we don't want to be changing them every three months, ideally. So how do we give them the best possible, he or she, the best possible chance of success? Does a a mentor in some way help? Because I think it does. I think it absolutely helps. um, Helps you, helps give clarity, again, and see through the fog, because it can get foggy. Um, As Ange starts saying in his quote, because everything will pull you away from when you go into it to begin with, with these clearly defined ideas. You know, whenever you lose self doubt, always you know you can't stop self doubt on the back of a defeat because ultimately you own that responsibility as a manager.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. Like a lot of a lot of coaches would get theirs from social media, their criticism and their noise. So it's very very easy to delete an app or to maybe put your phone away. But I I can't imagine again going back to Sunderland or even in Edinburgh with Hibs where you're you're going into a shop and you've got six fans probably there and you're going everywhere. There's there's that noise is everywhere in some regard. I mean that that period from five PM on a Saturday afternoon till maybe a Monday morning where you get the players in again. Is there a process that you've personally gone through? Is it get on the golf course? Is it get away? Is it get back in the office? Or like what, what have you found works for you in that in that almost that in between period before the players start?
1: Again, I think there's been an evolution in how you deal with it. I think when you begin to manage um you, you you find it's very, very difficult to to not um be consumed by it completely. Um now that's not to say you care less as you manage more games. I just think you get better at um understanding the time and the place to carry it because it can impact upon impacts upon your life. It's stressful, impacts upon family. Um you know, I, I got much better at, in the car, I tended to probably internalise all of the challenge of what, what was good, what was bad, right? What almost create a mental to-do list because everybody works in different ways. I, you know, I'm a visual person in my office. I like whiteboards around me. I like writing things up. But I also have quite a good memory for checklists. So I'll, I can you know almost stick that away in a little compartment. The minute I would walk through the door, I would, I would come away from it however when, when my daughters went to bed it was usually then my wife that, that found it more difficult because then almost she let it out again yeah. so it's almost a decision being, I don't want it to affect my children but <laughs> your, wife, your wife's got to bear the brunt of it almost so it's you try you know you, you you switch your phone off or you can put your phone in the drawer but I would love to say and give advice to say oh, we'll do this and do that and it works and you just you go into football management or be a football manager, a head coach, understanding that it, is, it will consume you um, make peace with that. Um, yes, absolutely do your best to ensure that you can have that, that work-life balance to degree in terms of how it affects you. But it's a demanding job. Um, highly, highly rewarding one when, when things are going well, but but also, yeah, demanding.
0: Hello, coaches. we take a quick break here. Today's podcast is sponsored by Football Careers, the global football recruitment company that specialises in recruiting for clubs, colleges, universities, and private soccer academies around the world. Really excited to team up with them. In addition to their specialist recruitment services, they also support candidates at all levels of the game with professionally designed football resumes. I had mine recently created by them and the professionalism and the design just blew me away. Highly recommend you check them out. They also support candidates with coaching philosophy brochures, PowerPoint presentations and interview processes for all your application and interview needs. They've been kind enough to offer the Modern Soccer Coach podcast listeners a 20% discount on their marketing products using the code MSC20 at checkout definitely go and check them out footballcareers.com the link is on the podcast information below footballcareers.com use the code MSC20 go get your resume redone go get your coaching philosophy brochure go get some extra support they are definitely worth checking out thanks so much to football careers back to jack your energy levels throughout the week then i can imagine again when you're winning Things are, are really, really good and everyone's at a good spot in the building and typically football clubs seem to be generated by a lot of energy that's delivered or derived from Saturday and how that goes. But when you're in the you know in a fifty-two week season or whatever it is, do you manage your own personal energy levels? Like in terms of the is there a day that you maybe take a day off the training pitch or maybe observe a bit more or maybe do a bit less or I guess what I'm asking is, do you pre-plan your week of of, of how you're going to basically make sure you're at your best on Saturday in terms of energy?
1: Um, probably one of my probably one of my biggest weaknesses, I think, um, is is not delegating enough. I think if um, you were to ask my staff, I think I would like to think they would speak well of me in a number of ways, but I know I'm aware of it that I don't delegate probably well enough. Part of that is, um, I suppose, there's a controlling aspect to that It goes back to the ultimate responsibility will fall upon some result. Um You know, do you then want to control everything and make sure you're affecting it? I have got marginally better at it over time. But what I would also say to temper that is that I've always loved coaching. I like being on the training pitch. So I actually found it any time I wasn't on the train pitch my players were and the other coaches were I found it quite uncomfortable um, what I did get better at is um, a match day minus one for me all the tactical work was done previous to that set piece responsibility was for all the members of staff um, which we did match day minus one the rest of match day minus one was really just that last part of physical preparation so all the tactical work had been done prior to that so I got better at that day becoming you know i had a lot of individual conversations around the training pitch but in terms of actually taking training it, and it probably talked about energy levels it it made me then be try and have as then be as high as I can for the match day because that's draining um so i yeah i you need to delegate I think you need to be if you're not good at it try and get better at it, but equally if you if you like being on the grass be on the grass you know just find different ways you know again as I was lucky and I went to bigger clubs and my staff grew I was able to then be on the pitch design the session what I wanted from it but float more between it you know rather than have to to always deliver aspects of it because I had more staff available to me so you know your listeners will have a variety of, of resources available to them you know it's okay saying well delegate or don't take everything well you might have to do it and I had to do my early coaching career but when you get to the point you have other staff available to you it sometimes gives you that opportunity to still feel completely involved in it and delivering without you know being able to take a little bit of step back and observe a little bit as well.
0: Yeah when we're on the topic of training pitch and we've spoken about the flexibility as as a personality and as a leader uh Again, something you referred to and referenced in the coach's voice interview was tactical flexibility and sometimes building in a three, sometimes building in a four. Again, you're going to have coaches listening here that are that are that struggle with that flexibility with you know messaging with younger players perhaps who see a four and a three and they need the clarity throughout the whole season. But obviously, the game, the way it's going, that flexibility is is becoming almost a skill coaches have to develop so from a session viewpoint I wanted to ask you how do you how do you get that balance right between working in a three working in a four does it depend on the opponent is it something that you periodize throughout the whole year or how does that process flow
1: well again it will depend on when you take a job so if you take a job or you're in a job at the start of pre-season period it gives you a pre-season is a brilliant um, opportunity to, to bed in as many ideas as you want to take through the season. So, you know, that's five to six to seven to eight week period gives you plenty of time then to to block off your weeks. And obviously you'll have a physical aspect of it, but when the tactical work begins, you know, we would spend um, seven to ten days on one system and seven to ten on another. And then it should be that by the time you come to your games, you have the ability to start and adjust using both of them, I think they go beyond two, you know, there's variations between certain systems that aren't that different, but if you're talking between the back three and the back four, it's probably the one, as you mentioned, that some some younger coaches find challenging. And then specifically to that, um, I think you have to be clear on what you want your, your back three to become, if that makes sense. So, the back, a back three should become a back five, which is pretty straightforward in terms of you know, how people move within that system. But obviously it's different from the... So the back three and the back five is different from a back four. But if you want your back three to become a back four when you're out of possession or defending, then it becomes slightly easier. And that's... So I've always... That's always been my preference. So my preference has always been that my wing-back swings around and becomes a full-back when the ball's on the opposite side of the pitch and then it just goes round like a pendulum. So it's not that different to a back four. So actually, it's a little bit easier to coach. However, if your preference says, number back three becomes a back five, which is quite common now, then that probably takes a little bit more luck. Um, so it goes back to, again, what we spoke about earlier, I think is, is being absolutely clear in your own mind what you want it to look like. And then ensuring that, um, the clarity of communication and information is given to the players. And if you are in a job pre-season, make the absolute most of that opportunity. It's the best time. It's always my favourite time as a manager because you coach, you have loads of opportunity to be in the training pitch. You don't have, don't have games. You don't have press conferences. So it's, it's nice and it's stress-free. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's maximising that opportunity for, for for whatever um tactical flexibility you want to be able to show through a season.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, you also shared four four foundations. Uh, how you defend, how you press, how you counter, how you switch. The switch element to it, uh, I'm really interested about. Does it change based on the system, or is there a is there an objective almost reference? Does it have to be a switch in a certain channel, or can you talk a little bit about that? I think it was. Um,
1: I think you will have certain experiences in your life um, and I wouldn't say playing career because I don't believe that you have to have played to be a successful coach or manager. Obviously I had a playing career and, and a good chunk of my playing career was spent as a fullback or as a wingback. So I actually was comfortable in that area of the pitch in the wide area of the pitch um, in terms of how I've seen the game because what the game looks like changes depending on where you are on the park. And I think that you know, reflecting back now, I think that had a a factor in how I, I wanted to play when I first started managing because I liked width in the game. So I, I liked width, I liked switch of play, I like crosses. I like one v one situation, two v one situation, three v two situation. Not that I was any good at the one v ones, but um but, so part of that I think was born out of Monet playing experiences where I felt comfortable and how I seen seen the game. Um, and then when I when I looked at kind of one of the simple mantras and when I coached and what players at what me would be sick of me saying it about you know, making the pitch as big as we can in possession now that's that's a pretty standard really traditional way of speaking it's been said for a number of years because it naturally makes it more difficult for opponents to get the ball and you can do that within a variety of systems and in a variety of ways and, and I probably had could I still get better at, at under at, at coaching that penetration through the middle of the pitch when we make the pitch big, yeah, probably. I think that's an acknowledgement, because I've always loved that width and switch of players. But I've also been fortunate that I've had players that have been able to fulfil that style. So I had Lewis Morgan, who's at um, New York Red Bulls now at St Myrne. I had Martin Boyle at Hibs, International. I had the likes of Aidan McGeady, um, Lyndon Gooch at Sunderland, who who thrived on those types of scenarios, who wanted the ball in wide areas, So wanted the ball switched quickly to enable them to get 1v1s and 2v1s and that opportunity to, to take people out of the game. So, um, yeah, I think a combination of my own, how i seen the game as a player and, and went into coaching, uh, and then one of my beliefs as a coach, um, and everybody's everybody sees the game in different ways. I, I like width. I like switches, I like crosses. Um uh, I enjoy watching that as well. So, again, that becomes probably a, marrying you know, what was best for you, what you've got available and resources with your own your own personal preferences and how the game should be played. Mm.
0: Uh, that post-game process, you talked a little bit about how you deal with it emotionally, but how you deal with it then in a principal fashion about your post-game meeting, is that something that you've kept consistent through all your clubs in terms of the timing and the the flow of that, almost that um, review, match day review from the day before or two days before? Has that evolved? Um,
1: yeah, because I, I think that so pre-match meetings or opposition meetings always been really structured and rigid with how, how we delivered the structure off and when they were delivered. Um, post-match, I've always um, been flexible with the information that's provided to me has remained consistent. So the information I get, the footage I get, how the analysis is presented, um, it's then you know, in communication and collaboration with staff, the way in which we deliver it. And it's not always the case that, it's certainly not always the case that we only we only do it when we've lost or we only do it in bad times. Um, and the reason that I haven't, the reason I've never been as deliberate and and structured with that is I think you have to smell or sense the, the mood, the time of the season, you know you talk about energy levels so where are the players mentally what do they want to see at that point what do they want to hear and I think you gauge that and you, and you have to sometimes I think you sometimes have to manipulate post-match footage to to help create the, it's not the, maybe the illusion is the right word, not the right word, but, you know, what you want to do moving forward. Um, A number of years ago, when I completed my pro license, Gregor Townsend, who's a Scottish, Rugby Union head coach, spoke a lot about feed forward, rather than feedback. And I thought it was really interesting, because, um, you know, that time, analysis had started to emerge, and it was all about, well, we should have done this, then we should have done that, and you should have been here. Well, the truth is, we we can't affect that now, it's gone. But what we can affect is the next game. So you can marry the two together. I think using you know post match footage combined with training footage, I think paints a better picture than always just looking at the post match. There's a time and a place for it, of course. And then the emergency unit work has obviously changed that as well. You know, I think that um, in recent years we would we would look much more at um, units post match than always doing it collectively.
0: Hello, coaches. We'll take our second and final quick break here. We have just released a new ebook on the Modern Soccer Coach website 20 scanning exercises for elite level players. If you're looking for some ideas around session design, vision, and awareness on the pitch, the ebook provides ideas and some inspiration that can challenge and help players of all abilities in this specific area of the game 20 exercises a variety of warm-up rondo type exercises small sided games that put decision making and awareness at the forefront in addition to the ebook coaches also get 20 short video animations that break down each exercise in terms of organization and structure msc 20 scan and training exercises ebook available now on the modern soccer coach website modernsoccercoach.com shop please check it out thank you the Sunderland documentary is—it's—it's it's, a lot of teams now are doing in-house stuff, and you see a lot of coaches now that are mic'd up, and especially over here in the U.S., you're seeing more and more of it. I'm always interested to to see that—does it impact how people act? Does it impact how people? I know people of some of the players were weren't going to be part of the Sunderland one, and I know there was there was a few comments on that there, and I want to get your thoughts if if you were to go into a club tomorrow and there was Amazon trucks outside. Would you, one what the experience that you went through, is there anything you would, you would change with that in-house stuff? Um, or you'd be a bit more wary of?
1: No, I'd probably be the opposite. I'd probably, I'd probably be a lot more relaxed um, than I was, um, again, to give context to it. I wasn't actually aware of the filament the in the second series until I started the job. Um, and then it was explained to me Um and one of the first conversations I had with the players who hadn't particularly enjoyed it and weren't keen on having it again. So naturally, my focus when I took the similar job was to win promotion and bring success back to the club. And I didn't want anything that would potentially derail that. Now, that, that might be a wrong opinion because I think that I certainly don't think the people who were involved in the production of the, of the, the series in any way wanted to do that or did do that. But I think I spent so much energy worrying about how is it affecting the players how is it affecting staff you know at the start of each week I had to sit with my PA Karen and and I had to go through a list of requests that they wanted to do and so again it was just taking up energy that I probably should have used in other areas but I look back at it now and think was it a missed opportunity for me in terms of probably giving real insight um, you know I, no, that's maybe wrong because I, think I did offer You know, to give maybe greater explanation of what we did, but I certainly think in terms of the energy I spent on, and again, fighting—it's the wrong description. What being uptight about it, worrying about the impact it had on everybody at the football club, about potentially derailing what we wanted to achieve—I wouldn't do that again. I'd be experience is a great thing in that respect. I'd be a lot more relaxed and understand that this isn't this isn't going to affect what we want to achieve. And if I feel that, I think then I can convey that to the players. But I would like to hope that people that listen to this or watch it would understand that, in my position of management, i time taking on this huge responsibility and privilege of managing this club and just being ultra-determined to to get success. You know, any, anything that came onto your radar has potentially um, been an obstacle and that was something you wanted to try and avoid. Plus, uh,
0: when I was growing up, it was the Graham Taylor one and then the John Sutton one and you you kind of like I think I think it's pretty natural to be cautious of what they can do to narratives and
1: yeah I mean I, I think that was the, that was the thing from it as I said earlier that the, you know, the production company behind are all Sunderland fans and so they're always going to paint the city and club in a really positive light um but I think it's it's like any any thing like that you can use um you know, footage and audio and piece it together. It doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. And I know that from watching. I've not watched it all properly, but I know from, from the bits that I have watched that it didn't necessarily follow in order as to what actually happened at the time. But I get that, it's television, it's a production of a television programme and these guys are skilled at what they do, but it doesn't always completely tell the story as it happened. Um but it was a yeah it was a huge learning experience for me as well. Um as I mentioned earlier, probably the biggest thing would be not. I I, I used up a lot of energy on that that I probably could have used elsewhere.
0: Yeah, but we're going to talk a little bit about education. I know your your pro licences and you take your coach education very seriously. And obviously the Scottish FA have a phenomenal reputation around the world for what they do with coach education. With the game changing and that level of the game of intrusion or media scrutiny that's coming into environments now is—is is that something that you've spoke to Greg or anyone at the Scottish FA about? Maybe we should start that layering in that type of lifestyle that a coach now has to look at.
1: I think that I think that the the greater practical insight that any coach or managers can get is beneficial. Um, you know, you I think you spoke at the beginning of this conversation about. Um, presentation I had delivered and about it being practical rather than theory-based. and A little bit of that bone out was believing, I did an undergrad, undergraduate degree a long time ago in economics and it was so theory-based as a course. And it was it was hard, but it was hard. Really, really tough. Very different to what I anticipated because if you look at the discussion around economics on the news or, it's quite real life at times, particularly the, especially the current climate, but it was so theory-based and um, some people enjoy it. I found that tough because I wanted, people well, how does it work in real terms? Um, and coaching and management is the same. I think we can spend a long time speaking about the theory behind it and speaking about how to, you know, structure a training session, which is of course is important. What's your opinion of four three three? What's the strengths and weaknesses of three five two? Yeah, you've got to have an understanding of that, but. Um, the reality aspect of it is something that I think that needs to be conveyed regularly. It is done. I would argue that it could be done more. Um, I think the, the realism side of it needs to be increased, um, even down to when you're on pitch. And you mentioned Greg Parson there, I've spoke to Greg about this. That, you know, it's very idealistic, and the, 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 all the candidates have you know a certain size of pitch with a certain number of players and they have loads of time to prep it. Where, you know, for a lot of coaches you're starting out in the game, and I've been there, you have a quarter of a pitch or a third of a pitch. Um, you know, you're expecting sixteen players, now you've got thirteen. Or you're expecting two goalkeepers, now you've got one. You know, you've not got time you've not got time to, to set up prior to the session start because the horn or the buzzer goes off and somebody else leaves the field. Now of course you don't have those challenges at the top level and I've been lucky that that progression is taking me there. I've got a i have got have all this brilliant facilities and resources and numbers available to me, but I had to start that way. And I would argue that that's 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 ultra important as well. Um and then you mentioned there about the um you know the pressures. One of the one of the best you know, one of the most enjoyable speakers of my pro licence course was um was the late Walter Smith. You know, so my admiration for what was there because I'd seen him manage successfully and how he had, how he had handled himself, and in, in big big jobs. But when he when he came to to present, it was real. It was back to being that authentic, and it was just valuable insight into you know the good things, but also the tough things. And I think he came away from it going like, okay, I've got some knowledge here that lets me step back, reflect, and think, is this for me? I didn't know you had a economics degree. Wow. Yeah, a long time ago. I, I had an um, unusual pathway in professional football in that I left school to to go full-time um, at a Premier League club. Dundee were in the Premier League at the time, and then I got released at the end of my apprenticeship. Um, and it's a little bit different to how the modern game works in terms of exit strategies. I think there's a, there's a lot more support available for players nowadays um, not always enough. I still think that we can get better at it. Um, but for me, you—you were—I was just released, and that was it. Um, you know, for the first time and probably since I was five years old, I was rather less. Didn't know what I wanted. You know what I do. Um, so I—I I had my enough school qualifications to get a late entry into university, and and did a degree for four years. So I almost actually replicated what what yourself did, and people who go to the States and do a scholarship um, except I stood off more back and I played junior football in Scotland um, didn't go back to professional football until I was 22 so I, it was a yeah an experience that ideally I didn't want to have had because I wanted to be playing professional football um, I know much about economics <laughs> <laughs> not a huge amount no um, but uh, you know, I had four years of doing an honors degree, and and had enough probably self-discipline and and sheer bloody mindedness as opposed to try and get through the degree. Um, and it's always been there for me. You know, thankfully I've been able to have a you know career in the professional game, both playing and coaching and management. But um, I suppose I'm quite proud now that I did it. You know, when I was young um, and managed to get through it.
0: Yeah, my, my business degree over here was not difficult at all. Um, but I tell you what, the economic part of it was, I struggled. <laughs> You're doing four years of economics. Was there any part of that? Is it, is it a data side or is it the numbers of transfer fees or maybe a recruitment side? Or is there anything that you've taken from that and that has influenced your coaching?
1: Well, I think, I think what my degree did, and it was all, I only realised this when I started to coach and management, was, um, was I had to present. And I had to create presentations, and I had to write, and I had to structure essays and dissertations. So being structured and organised and and having good time management, I felt as if I needed to do that. Some students might not agree. They might not think that's important, but I thought it was in order to get through the degree. So I I was comfortable at communicating. I was comfortable at presenting. I was comfortable at organising. And then within the the four-year degree, I did you know, did um, some marketing modules, did accountancy modules, and so I was able to read, I can read balance sheets, I can read spreadsheets, financial spreadsheets, I can, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on them, but I can read them, which I think meant, meant that when I got budgets put to me, I I, I could interpret them reasonably quickly in terms of the, the key aspects of it. If you're asking me to do a deep dive into them, no, of course I couldn't, but so I, it taught me, or, or gave me some valuable tools to going into coaching management that I would never have appreciated at the time, never. Um, and um, yeah, I, mean, I suppose that I'm sure that would I always would I advise any players or budding coaches to, to arm themselves with different experiences, qualifications. Yeah, because you just don't know where they'll help you along the way.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, moving in then to your you're studying a an MSC in, in sport directorship. Is that something that is an evolution of the leadership aspect of sport, or is that something that you looked at and said, "Oh, I'd like to director football, technical director one day."
1: Yeah, so so for me, it was um, something that I had I had flirted with the idea of doing for the last three or four years. Um, I, I wanted to do a masters or a post grad in some area. I've always enjoyed learning. It was hard when I was really immersed in some of the jobs I was in to do. It. I can't go any further than my coaching. You know, I can't go anything beyond my pro licence. So. Um, but equally, I, I, some of the courses I looked at weren't that specific to football or sport. Where this course is a, it's, you know, it's a master's in sports directorship, which is a growing area within the game. Um, I think I was a sporting director sceptic by more admission when I was a manager or head coach. But through my experiences, and then through education, I'm I've, my, having that greater understanding of the role, but the person in the role being right for it. And, and that's, again, I think I'm fairly honest in my, my own reflection of more abilities and qualities. And I think that I would be a value to an organization of that type of role. I do, because I, I can understand the, the, the significance of um, the longer term strategy of the club and the vision of the club. I very much understand the challenges you've been a manager and head coach and having to deliver on a short-term basis so um, for me it's ideally the area I would like to go into you know having this qualification to hopefully help me um, or give me a greater opportunity if you like Um, I like to hopefully some of my experiences um, and abilities that I've shown um, both as a player as a manager but I've I've very very much enjoyed it so far it was it was I wasn't sure how it would be going back into to academia, if you like, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the, the, the when we spend time together as a cohort and and enjoyed the submissions that we've been tasked with today as well and feel as if that already it's, it's, it's taught me things that um, will help me moving forward. And I said, ideally I get an opportunity in that, in that area of the game.
0: Brilliant. And then that, that next step for you then, that open-mindedness, is that, is that open to go in different areas? Is that open to different roles? Sport director, head coach? Or what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I man. What, what, what I have at the moment is a, is a little bit of time. Um, and I'm, I've had a challenging year in that. I very much miss the structure of working every single day. Um, you know, I kind of thrive off that and enjoy it. So that, that can be a challenge at times. But the time that I have, I need to try and maximise that to the best I can. And um, So taking the Masters course on in Sports Directorship with a view to to wanting to do that moving forward. And then at this moment in time, and it might change, I've not been looking to be a head coach or manager in the UK again. Um, I, I just want a change of direction, whether that be in terms of the roles, point director, or country and environment. You know, I'm um, making the most of the connections, so I've connected quite well with a lot of people in the U.S. That to try and maximise any potential opportunities there as well, because um, I just feel as if I'm ready for that. I've always I've always believed I can add value to an organisation, but equally I need to, to feel as if I'm, I'm doing my best and I'm motivated by it. Um, I don't really like treading water. And the last thing I'd want to do is take a, a management job on where I feel as if I'm doing that. Um, and again, it might change, but right now, I've I've I was giving me a little bit of time to reflect and think about like, what do I want to do within the game moving forward. And instead, said, I'm working in a completely different culture and environment and learning about that, and or moving into that different sphere of the game, whereby I think my experiences to date um, and knowledge gained would be an asset in organisation.
0: Yeah, you're you're coming over for the convention with the Scottish coaches. Uh, yes. I am, yeah,
1: coming to Philadelphia in early January, so looking forward to um So doing a little bit on pitch delivery, um, and then um, Q and A the following day. So, yeah, looking forward to that. I've never been to the convention, so a um, long deliver, and just outside it, I think I'm I'm going to take a wander in, and I know there's a huge amount that goes on at it. So, going back to that filtering process, trying to understand um, what might be of most interest and benefit to me. But I know from from Kind of network I've built up over my time in the game I know a number of people who are attending either based in the US or travelling over so um, yeah very much looking forward to attending and looking forward to hopefully um, meeting up with some people that I haven't seen in a long time as well
0: Yeah that Scottish coaches is going to be bigger than the convention I think in the next five ten years <laughs> the Last couple for you just on the career side then about, about growing that network, let's go back to a 22 year old coach who coming out of college with a football degree or analysis degree and, you know, is looking at working at the, at the highest level, what advice would you have for them in terms of structuring their careers or getting exposed to opportunities?
1: Um Yes, yeah, so two parts to that, I think. In terms of where they want to go with their career, find out as much you can about different roles within the game and by experience. So, can you get whether that's volunteering, that isn't always the case for everybody. But learn, and you only learn properly about the role by being close to it or watching people do it. So if you're, if your ultimate ambition is to be a manager, try and get close to somebody who is a manager and watch them work and understand the challenges of the job, if it's an assistant, if it's an analyst. And I suppose that leads into the, the first part of as well, how do you do that? Because that's not always easy as well. And a very simple piece of advice is, is how it, you reach out. You reach out and you connect and you will get rejections, you will get ignored. Of course you will. But you'll also be surprised at people who will help and support. You know, when I was a, when I have been in a position as a manager, head coach, it doesn't happen all that often. And I think that, again, that is down to people's perception that they will just get knocked back. But I have had on occasions people probably guess my email address or send a generic one to the club and hope, hope it finds its way to me. And I think, I think by memory that I've always got back to them. Now there may be somebody who listens to this and say no I didn't. <laughs> and I apologise if there is. But I would always go back and and, and very, very often I would I would welcome them into the training ground and come and watch a session. Again, you'll go back, there's a lot of decent people within the game. And just because they end up at a higher level it doesn't mean they say they're not decent people who understand their own journey. Um, and you know, my coaching journey began at Dunbarton coaching semi-professional players two nights a week. Um I was lucky that I had the network in the game because I had a playing career, but I know how tough that can be if you don't have that behind you. So reach out. You know, obviously there's various platforms in which people can do it. Coaching education courses, um, asking tutors after. You know, it's not... I have no problems with it. I've given people contact details of mine, you know, use tools like LinkedIn to do it. I'm I'm doing it at the moment from from a sport's directorship perspective. You know, I'm having to rewind a little bit to say, well, how do I build a network in that area? Um... And I think if you're polite and you're courteous um, and you're clear on, on why you're reaching out and what you want to get from it, then you'll be surprised. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at the people that will open the doors to you.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. And then last one for you, a little bit of an idealistic uh, for, for a coach who maybe, you know, I know that when when head coaches get hired, they they normally have their staff lined up. But let's just say for this question, you don't have your staff lined up and and just for the the process of the interview or the process of the personality. Let's just say you're looking for an analyst and it's a fresh start or an assistant coach. What would you look for in that person or that personality to work in your environment?
1: I think firstly, be a good person. In my experience, good good people make good, good players. I think good people make good members of staff. So, you know, if you want to unwrap that a little bit, it's about their own principles, their own morals, their own manners, how courtesy courtesy they are to people, how respectful they are to people. These are big things for me. You know, we can all have our own weaknesses and our own differences in personality. How quickly do those are tempo or how organized, whatever it is. But I think having decency is a a great starting point. And then specifically to me, I would want staff who are grounded with a work ethic, but driven to leave me. That's what you'd want. Either driven to take my job in a good way. In a good way. You know, I think that you don't want to be to, that are undermining you. But I think, you know, I, I should have an assistant that thinks, well, if he's got an ambition to be manager, well, could I go and do what he's doing? But to leave you, I, mean, I have no problem with that. I think staff, it's the same with players for me. You know, I, I, I would count players as my staff. And you know, I've, I take pride and satisfaction with working with players who go on to move to bigger and bigger clubs. It's the same with staff members, you know, and it's always professional, never personal in that respect. So if it goes back to that tread and water aspect of how I would want to work with staff all the time who are who are grounded, but clearly driven and have an ambition and how they want to follow their career.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Great way to finish. Jack, thanks so much. I've gone way over our time here, so apologies, but a lot I wanted to get through and this has been fantastic just from my perspective. But I know a lot of coaches over here are really gonna enjoy it. And thank you and, and wishing you all the best in the future.
1: Oh well, thank you, guy. Enjoyable and um you know, from to give, you know, from my perspective, good feedback to you. It's nice to have a, a conversation very much about the Dig a bit deeper into the nuances of managing and coaching because it's not always as a, as a, as some the jobs that I've done. You get the opportunity to do so. So hopefully, hopefully, there'll be some values as people that are listening.
0: Brilliant. brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast.
1: For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources.